Good singing. It's been a while since I've sung that one. You may be seated. Before I start, let me quickly put a word in for the library. Um, Linda Craft has been here all week uh, getting it sorted out, and uh, the church is growing, the use of the library is growing, and with that uh, come a measure of organization that's required. Uh, a lot of you have taken books out and... Uh, They've been out for some time, and unfortunately, there are also quite a few books that are out that don't have anyone signed off on them, so we're not sure who has them, uh, and that's okay. The, the library is here for us to use, and I'm glad we're using it. However, if you do have a book out, please let us know. If you can contact me here at the church, uh, send a message, email, text. Uh, just let me know that you have a book so that we know where they are and um, uh, we can bring our inventory up to date. Also, just to remind you, thank you to all of you who have been donating books. We now have more than we can possibly handle at the moment. Please don't bring us any more books until we have uh, the present lot sorted out. God bless you to all of those who have been bringing us books, but we're full. Um, all right, on that happy note, let's turn our attention now to the necessity of AI. Why did AI follow Jericho? Uh, we've traveled a long way with Joshua in his momentous journey from being a slave of Pharaoh, who in the Bible is a picture of the God of this world. He was a slave of Pharaoh to being a servant of Moses, then a leader of men, before graduating in the promised land to become a slave of God. The highest position we can aspire to in this life is to be God's slave and a servant to our brothers and sisters. There is no higher position you can attain to. We've acknowledged that Joshua was a genius in the Battle of Jericho, uh, not because he led an army to defeat that great city. God did that. Uh, but that he somehow managed to inspire and provoke and keep going an unruly, rebellious group of people and get them to repeat day after day after day something that seemed to yield no results, uh, that uh, made no sense, until it did, and the walls fell down. That took some doing on Joshua's part. Last week, we saw Joshua's despair and confusion when a small village defeated part of the army that had just defeated Jericho. And we see the confusion that resulted in Joshua's mind um, uh, because uh, they were going to take over the whole promised land, and if they were going to be defeated by every little village they came across, how on earth were they going to do that? Well, we discovered that the defeat was caused by the disobedience of one man whose sin in taking some loot from Jericho brought, brought God's judgment on all of Israel. And, of course, there's a message there for us in this body of Christ. We're all interlinked. We're one body here. If you're a member of this church, we belong to each other. One person's blessing is all of our blessing, and one person's sin, unrepented, becomes all of our sin. Um, 
as with everything we read in Scripture, there is always great truth to be gleaned from events that affect and depict both good and bad experiences for God's people. The defeats they encounter in Scripture are just as important as the victories they enjoy. We experience similar triumphs, trials, and hardships, and should be strengthened by what Scripture teaches in that regard. Triumphs remind us of what is possible when we yield fully to God. Trials test what we know. Pain and suffering test who we are. That's how it works. Think of the purpose of testing this way. If you're an eighth grade student, you take a test at the end of the year to examine what you know and understand to determine if you're fit to graduate to ninth grade. Only an eighth grade student may take an eighth grade test. In the world of schools and students, the physical identification of that person uh, determines if indeed he or she is an eighth grade student. And that identification may be uh, an ID card or his or her name on the school roll. But in the spiritual world, it's a little different. Here, the teacher, God, knows very well who we are and what grade we've reached. We are the ones who haven't got a clue very often who we are and what spiritual level we've attained to. We may not know where we fit in. The student may not know who he is or where he fits into God's family. And we are those students. And, you know, if we, if we compare this to Paul, uh, you look at Paul's introductions to all his letters. He knew precisely who he was. Uh, in his letters to the Romans, the Corinthians, the Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, etc., uh, there's only one book uh, he writes to the Thessalonians and doesn't tell us who he is and what his, his job is because he's writing it with Sylvanus and Timothy. Uh, but then when he writes to Titus and Philemon, Philemon, he calls himself a prisoner of Christ. He was actually a prisoner of Nero, but Paul's association with his Savior was so close. And he saw himself as a slave of Christ, so he naturally assumed if he was a prisoner of the emperor in Rome, it was because his slave master, Jesus Christ, wanted him there. And so he says, I'm a prisoner of Christ. That's the kind of attitude God wants us to have. Um, we may not be sure of our spiritual identity, spiritual stature, and access that we have to spiritual assistance. We might also be unsure of the contents of our curriculum. Well, trials are one way that you're going to learn all those things. You know, there's no more obnoxious Christian than an ignorant Christian. And by the way, I don't think we have any in this church. Uh, an ignorant Christian who has an inflated position, uh, opinion of himself and thinks that he has all the answers about God or that his little sins will be overlooked, his little unrepented sins, his little pet sins will be overlooked by God because he has some kind of special deal with God, some sort of special relationship. Um, testing. 
is God's way of opening our eyes to who we really are and where we really stand in relation to God. It's like putting a tea bag into hot water to test its flavor or lack of flavor. We saw that vividly presented last Sunday in Pastor's sermon about Abraham and the tremendous sacrifice God asked him to make. Abraham graduated from that test with a new understanding of himself and a much deeper and more joyful relationship with God, his heavenly father, the God whom he served. There's a more contemporary picture uh, that's presented by the surprising turnaround in the life of an infamous sinner, Oscar Wilde. You may be familiar with his name. You may have read some of his books. Brilliant author, flamboyant 19th century playwright, novelist, essayist, and poet who died at the age of 46. Shortly after his release from prison, uh, two years in prison, where he was sent for a homosexual relationship with a young nobleman. The fact that Wilde was a married man with two children made his sin even worse. Um, in those days, you went to jail for that particular sin. It was through this test that he discovered the meaning of his life. He recounts that for the first year in prison, he could do nothing but wring his hands in despair and wonder how he could have come to such a terrible end in his life. A life that was once so outwardly glamorous. By the second year in prison, he was marveling that he had come to such a wonderful beginning. And he recounts this adventure in a wonderful little book called De Profundis. He discovered through his suffering that he had wasted his life seeking only pleasure. This is what he said. When we begin to live, what is sweet is so sweet to us, and what is bitter is so bitter that we inevitably direct all our desires towards pleasure. But, he noted, if we feed only on honeycomb, we will be starving our soul. What a wonderful truth that is. If we feed only on honeycomb, we starve our soul. It was in prison that he came to see the necessity of surrendering to Jesus Christ, whom he recognized as unique in his understanding, the leprosy of the leper, the darkness of the blind, the fiery misery of those who live for pleasure and the strange poverty of the rich. The man knows how to put a good sentence together. Or he knew he's been dead a long time. Wilde saw that Christ, the man of sorrows acquainted with grief, made sorrow and beauty one in their meaning and manifestation. The deepest expression of this truth, of course, is found in the story of Job. Someone I reference often, just about every sermon, because he's such a central figure in the Bible and so important in the life of every Christian. Job should be one of the books that you read again and again and again, and every time you read it, you're going to discover new truth in it. Uh, 
His great suffering brought him to the feet of God himself and greatly multiplied the blessings he had received before his trial. We read in Job 42 verse 12, So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than in the beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep, this is at the end of his life, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 she-asses. He also had seven sons and three daughters. Now, if you've been paying attention, you might wonder at an apparent discrepancy here. If you go to the beginning of the book of Job, you'll see that in the beginning he had 7,000 sheep. At the end he had 14,000. He had 3,000 camels. At the end he had 6,000. A thousand yoke of oxen from 500 and a thousand she ashes from 500. But in the beginning of the book, he has seven sons and three daughters, and of course, they die all at once in a terrible accident. Then at the end of his life, he had another seven sons and three daughters. And yes, he did have 14 sons and six daughters because the first half were waiting in heaven for the second half to join them. When the Job family was reunited in heaven, he had twice as many children as he had at the first. With these thoughts in mind, it should come as no surprise that the allegorical picture of the victorious Christian life found in the book of Joshua presents the tragedy of Ai immediately after the triumph of Jericho, the notable victory over that great Walled City was an extraordinary demonstration of God's power, God's intervention. Yet, who in that army of Israel maybe didn't think just, if, if just for a moment, that, well, I had something to do with that. I mean, I'm a pretty good soldier, and boy, when, when we marched around that city, I marched better than anyone else. Uh, that's just human nature. Achan whose name we discovered means trouble, undoubtedly thought that he deserved a little reward for his efforts. And so he took for himself some things forbidden by God, whom he didn't know very well clearly, and he, whom he respected even less. Do you understand that deliberate sin, unrepented sin, is an insult to God, is a sign of the fact that we actually don't respect him very much? We treat him with disdain. To sin wantonly and not to repent is about the most insulting thing you can do to the God who came to this earth and died for you for that sin. And I don't say that to condemn you because I am the chiefest of sinners. I know this for a fact because I've been there. Achan's was a selfish act that brought shame and judgment on all of Israel. Achan, like Eve, Eve before him, could not have imagined the consequences of his sin, both for himself and for others. Nobody understood this danger better than the Apostle Paul, the greatest figure in the early church. He is on record throughout the New Testament regarding the necessity of self-denial in the presence of God, the one thing that qualified Paul so supremely to be the apostle, the messenger of God that he was, who founded the New Testament church 
through his voluminous writings, who gave us one-third of the New Testament, this great apostle, what qualified him so well was the crushing knowledge and memory of the fact that he had at one time in his life murdered people for whom Christ had died. Paul never forgot that. He knew he was forgiven. He knew that that sin was gone. He knew that he would spend eternity in heaven with his Savior, but he never forgot the fact that he had begun his life as an adult by pursuing innocent people and murdering them. And he always remembered in every circumstance that he was unworthy of even the tiniest blessing. And that's what caused him to sell out to God. If there's anything that holds us back from selling out to God, from, from rejoicing in him, from walking with him, from following him, from saying yes to everything he demands of us, the one thing that holds us back from that is we don't really believe that we are that bad. We don't understand that we have feet of clay. Now, I'm not proposing that you need to be a rotten sinner in order to qualify for that. But it is very important that we know who we are. And by the way, knowing who you are doesn't mean that you stop sinning. You still have feet of clay. It just means when you do sin, you feel really bad about it, and you try and put it right. And so Paul, we're going to look at some of his writings, because in his writings, we see his heart exposed as a man who knew who he was. Romans 12, verses 1 to 3, a very, very familiar passage pastor also preached on this recently i beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of god that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice holy acceptable unto god which is your reasonable service and be not conformed to this world but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of god for i say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you and every woman, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, that is, with careful discernment, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. And then in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10, and he said unto me, he's quoting God here, so God said to me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, or I will gladly boast about my weaknesses, says Paul. The great apostle, the great church planter, I will gladly boast about my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in, or I am content with, infirmities, in reproaches or insults, in necessities or troubles, in persecutions, in distresses, difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. That is the fundamental principle of the Christian life, of the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ, knowing, not academically, but by life experience, heart experience, when I am weak in myself, 
when I recognize the weakness in myself, when I know who I am, when I understand my identity, my frailty, when I know that, then I am strong. Because then I turn to Christ with a humble heart and beg him for his blessing, for his life, for his strength, because I know how much I need it. It's not a theoretical thing. It's a fact of my life. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship. It's a wonderful statement. We are his workmanship. He is the great potter, and we are the clay on the wheel, and he constantly is shaping us. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Then Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels or affection and mercies, Fulfill ye my joy, and be ye like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. That word means vanity, a high opinion of yourself. Don't, let, don't ever do anything from that position. Vanity. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. You know, when Paul called himself the chiefest of sinners, he actually meant that. He, re he really felt that. It wasn't just a casual thing that he handed out to impress people. He really felt he was the worst possible sinner. And he marveled at the grace of God extended to him every day. In lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. In other words, when Jesus Christ equated himself with God, he didn't think that he was robbing God of his glory in any way, because Jesus is God. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, knowing that he was equal with God, co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. You'd have thought, wow, didn't he humble himself enough just by being born in a stable the son of peasants who were penniless. But he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Paul warns us that when we fly too high for too long, we may begin to believe that it is by our own power and skill. Then God must bring us back to earth as a reminder that it is only with his wings that we fly. 
That's why we go through trials and tests. God wants us to be reminded that it's by his life. The very next breath you and I draw is a gift from God. Everything we have is a gift from God. The psalmist tells us that God knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are dust. Problem is, we are the ones who forget that too soon. It seems to be so easy to forget, especially when we're walking on some mountaintop in life. Everything's going great. Uh, just got that big promotion at work. Just won the lottery because we prayed and said, Lord, if you let me win the lottery, I'll tithe to the... In fact, I'll give half of it to the church. We are the ones who forget too soon. AI was a terrible defeat and a necessary lesson, but it was not the end of Israel's struggles in the promised land. Their wars and battles continued so that they would remain dependent on God and would have to acknowledge that all their victories belonged to God. The psalmist recalls in Psalm 44 and verse 3, they got not the land in possession by their own sword, neither did their own arm save them, but thy right hand and thine arm and the light of thy countenance, that's what got them the victory. Psalm 98.1, O sing unto the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm has gotten him the victory. The absolute supremacy of our God demonstrated in the book of Joshua and described in the Psalms is echoed again by the great prophet Isaiah. Turn with me there to Isaiah 43. We're going to read from verse 1 to verse 13. I'll skip a little bit in the center just for the sake of time. Actually, we've got enough time to read it all. Verse 1, But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel. By the way, put yourself, your own name in there. He that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. God knows your name and my name. Hallelujah. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I... And the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Sheba for thee. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for, for thee and people for thy life. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. Here he's speaking specifically to Israel. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from far and my daughters from the ends of the earth. This, by the way, was fully uh, um, fulfilled in 1948. Some of us were alive then. 1948, he brought Jews from the four corners of the world, and in May of that year, the nation of Israel miraculously came back to life again. The greatest miracle since the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it happened in our era. 
Verse 7, even everyone that is called by my name, for I've created him for my glory, I've formed him, yea, I've made him. Bring forth the blind people that have eyes and the deaf that have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring forth their witnesses that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say, it is truth. Ye are my witnesses. He's talking to us. All he said up to this point, I want you to be my witnesses. You to, to tell other people about my greatness, saith the Lord. And my servant, whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me. That's what God wants of us. Just obey me. Just walk with me so that you can be my witnesses, so that you can know me and obey me. And understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I have declared and have saved and I have showed when there was no strange God among you. Therefore ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. Yea, before the day was, I am he. And there is none that can deliver out of my by hand. I will work, and who shall let it? That little word let there, uh, back then in King James English, meant our word prevent. Who can prevent it? When I work, no one can stand in my way, says God. The absolute supremacy of our God. To the extent that we know this, we will be secured against thinking too highly of ourselves or of the idols upon which we may foolishly depend from time to time. It is truth we must know not as objective theory but as subjective fact. Anything in our Christian life can't just be like something we put on the shelf to gather dust that it looks nice, it sounds nice, uh, probably is nice if I gave it a try, but I'm too busy right now. Nothing in the Christian life should be theory. It should all be fact that you have practiced, that you have walked in, that is real to you in every respect. By this I mean that we should not view our walk with God as if it's something detached from real, everyday life. Our walk with God should be constantly infused with his presence. I believe that when, when the Bible says pray without ceasing, it means literally as you go through the day, it doesn't mean that you, you are praying out loud, but God is never far from your thoughts. You share every experience with him, every thought with him. Uh, C.S. Lewis um, wrote about prayer, and he said that the best, the most powerful form of prayer is to say nothing. Just be aware. Just be, God should be there at the foremost of your mind, whatever you're doing. It's not something a scientist might consider in a lab experiment, this walk with God. It's a reality that is present with us every second of every day of our lives, now and forever. Scripture tells us that when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we experience his life in us. If our walk with God is real and honest each day, 
as an ongoing experience of his presence with us and in us, guiding us and protecting us and strengthening us, it is then, then and only then, that we will see every Jericho wall in our life fall flat to the glory of God. Amen. Father, bless us.